Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Each of the four Gospel writers record the denial of Christ by Simon Peter. I'd like to ask you to go, first of all, to the book of Luke, and we're going to look at the 22nd chapter in three verses from the book of Luke, chapter 22, verses 31 through 33. Luke 22, 31, reads as follows. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. Now let's turn to the Gospel of John. And we're going to the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John. We've been studying this section commonly called the Upper Room Discourse leading up to the Passion of Christ, which we've begun to look at in the last couple of weeks. You remember that Jesus washed the feet of the apostles because no one in the apostolic group was willing to humble himself to wash the feet of his comrades, and even the feet of Jesus himself, their Lord, their master, their rabbi. So Jesus disrobed, put on the garment of a slave, and did the washing of the feet. And now we are going to look at the last three verses of chapter 13 as we move toward the denial of Christ by Simon Peter. Verse 36 of chapter 13 says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow later. I'm going to pause here just a moment and remind you of what Jesus says. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke and to a different degree in the book of John where he says, whoever wishes to come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And the word translated follow really would better be understood, keep on following me. So this is where perhaps Peter says, I'm going to follow you wherever you go, Lord. I'm going to be true to you is what he's saying there. And then Peter says in verse 37, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. Now make your way to chapter 18. We're going to begin with verse 15. Remembering that last week we looked at the trial before the high priest Annas and it was really more like a grand jury. It was 
a matter of discovering evidence that could be used against Jesus because no verdict was rendered. Technically, Annas was not the chief priest. He had been the chief priest, you recall, but no longer was. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, was. Look at verse 15 of John 18. And Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought in Peter. The slave girl, therefore, who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves and Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest therefore questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And then the trial before Caiaphas is recorded. And then once more... John the Apostle picks up at verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said therefore to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter therefore denied it again, and immediately a cock crowed. Does it strike you as a bit odd that the story, as John tells it, is interspersed with reference to the trial of Jesus before the Jewish tribunal we know as the Sanhedrin? Now, here's the thing we need to remember. There is an apostle who is accompanying Peter to the place where Jesus was being tried but he's unnamed. Scholars are in full agreement at this point. It's an oblique reference to John, the writer, by himself. He demurs and doesn't want to interject himself into this story. And so he just simply refers to himself in a passing manner without calling himself by name. And so he's telling what he has seen happen and he knows to be true. He gives us fuller detail of the aspects of the denial. Here's why I believe the Holy Spirit has intertwined the trial of Jesus before the Jews, the Sanhedrin, and the final denial of Jesus by Peter. Here's why. I think he's wanting to tell you and me something today. I believe the Holy Spirit would say to us that we are people who do, like Peter at times, deny Christ. Now let's back up just a moment. I don't believe Peter was in any way disingenuous when he says to Jesus, I'm not going to deny you. He meant it. And he was a man who, interestingly enough, among the apostles, 
If we were to go to Matthew chapter 16, this is what we would discover. That in Matthew 16, Jesus is asking in a place called Caesarea Philippi, who do men say that I am? Do you remember that? And there were various answers given by different apostles. But when it came Peter's turn to give the answer to the question, he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus responded in a complimentary way. He said, you are Simon, the son of John. And God has explained this. You have seen this. And he commended the apostle. So we know this man, Peter, had confessed Christ. And he knew Jesus. And he could not imagine turning his back on Jesus. No one was more surprised than Peter when he denied Christ. Have you ever find yourself, found yourself in such a situation? You confess Christ as your Lord and Savior sometime in the past. And you had every intention going forward to continue to follow Christ. And as the Scripture says, you would be right behind Jesus. Close by. Not some distance, but right behind Jesus. As John says, Peter was following right behind Jesus after the conversation that's recorded in John 13 is given. So here's a message for us today who have a tendency to sin. And I think that would be all of us, frankly. We have and. Maybe some of you have denied Christ repeatedly and you feel like there's no hope for me. I'm just a washed up believer in Christ. Well, the good news is there is hope for you. And I'm going to look again, if you want to go there, you can, to Luke chapter 22 and listen to what Jesus says to Peter. You probably got it when we read it earlier. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Actually, the idea of demanded permission may better be translated has asked for permission of God to sift Jesus like, sift Peter rather, and like wheat. And when we look at this and we read it, Without benefit of some interpretation, I think I knew this was the way it was. I thought I was right for many years. As I looked at it in the English language text, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. I thought that this was a particular message only to Simon Peter. But come to find out, the word translated you there in verse 31 of Luke 22, is y'all, is what it really is. It's all of you apostles. He speaks to Simon Peter, but then he addresses the other who were present there, all of the apostles. Satan has gained permission to sift you like wheat. And then we know what Jesus goes on to say, look at verse 32, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Isn't it good to know that Jesus is praying for you this morning? 
And his prayer for you is the same as it was for Peter, that your faith would not fail. But then something startling really follows. Jesus says, and you, when once you have turned again, that means once you have repented, then what? Strengthen your brothers. One wonders, why does the Lord let us sin after we come to know Jesus? Have you ever wondered when you struggled with that in your life, sinning? Well, we see something here that helps us. And we're going to get to this in more detail. Might as well go ahead with it right now. That is the first step to Peter's denying Christ was he was overly confident in himself. Any confidence that you and I put in ourselves is wasted and is dangerous because of what the Scripture says, that we in our own selfish side, and that's the way we were completely before we received Christ, but the residue of selfishness still resides in our person. And therefore, we have to be careful about assuming anything about how we're going to conquer the situation. When we look at Peter, he was a picture of self-confidence here. And he was one who had to learn, like all of we do, the hard way to say no to ourselves in order that we may say yes to the Lord. Going back to the call that Jesus gives to us to be his followers. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. That is the exact word that the word of God and Jesus himself uses to describe Paul's rejecting of Christ when he denied him. The same thing. Why had not Peter come to that place of understanding so he was not relying anymore on himself because of what the Bible calls our flesh. There's a part of us that still wages war against the Spirit of God in our being. And it's the flesh. Let me simplify that by describing the flesh. The flesh is my personality apart from the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit of God. Another way of saying that, apart from the controlling influence of Jesus Christ, my Lord. We have that tendency built into us. We scratch our heads sometimes if we don't fall to our knees and say, Lord, I've done it again, whatever it is. I've denied you again, Lord. Well, what we need to realize is that we have this tussle with ourselves. We're overly confident. The Apostle Paul knew this full well when we read his own personal testimony. In the book of Romans, chapter 7, for instance, he says, the things I want to do, I do not do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And he's saying that in the context of a discussion of the law of God and the importance of the commands of God, and he wanted to be a man who was perfect in the way he lived his discipleship out in following Christ, just like Peter did. But he had a conflict. 
that was unresolved until he discovered that the Holy Spirit of God is in him. I'm talking about Paul now. And Peter discovered it later too. And all of those who have a heart to follow Christ must understand it because we still have a contest internally with our flesh, our selfish side. We don't have to live a defeated life because we can trust Christ and learn the importance of not focusing on ourselves. At the memorial service for Luann Bowman on Friday, Jean and she had have had a key verse in their lives, and Jean asked me to focus on that. And it's in Psalm 46:10. The Bible says, Be still and know that I am God. That's so serene, isn't it? It's sweet to hear that. Be still. I have a hard time being still. Do you? Sometimes I look like I'm still on the outside, but I'm busy on the inside. Anybody else like that here today? I've got all sorts of things, and I try to keep a, a calm demeanor and a facade that would indicate that I've got it together. You know what I mean? You probably don't know what I mean. Most of you are not as hypocritical as I can be in that regard. But that's not what the text means. In Psalm 46, be still and know my, that I'm God. Literally, the word means drop your hands is literally what the Hebrew says. Drop your hands and know that I'm God. The only way I can really know God is to take my hands off of my life. And I have the habit, just like Peter did and to a lesser degree, perhaps Paul, after he came to know Christ, I have the habit of trusting God. I've seen it happen so many times when I, I just feel like, God, I can't do this, whatever this may be, some assignment he's given me. And I'm just like a little child before the Lord, begging him, begging me, begging him to help me. And he's always willing to do that when I come to him with the right heart. But what happens after he's helped me is very curious. It doesn't happen every time. But after he's helped me and I'm feeling good about how well I handled that assignment. And I'll begin to kind of go, you know, I'm pretty good. Did pretty good. That's the flesh. It's insidious. And it's insistent upon wanting to influence us. And by the way, in that great Psalm 46, God describes Himself twice as the God of Jacob. Do you think that's without any thought on God's part? Absolutely not. Why didn't He call Him the God of Israel? Because that was His new name. Remember, Jacob made a life out of usurping God's authority and controlling other people. But he met God one dark night on the shore of a river called Jabbok. And he wrestled with the Lord all night until finally God broke him of himself. And when God speaks of his being the God of Jacob, that is the background. But here's another aspect. 
Israel means ruled by God. That name indicated what happened in Jacob's life. He became one who was ruled by God. But just like we are apt to do, he would slip back at times into Jacob. He vacillated between Israel and Jacob. Now, he did not have a split personality. He was a person who was a follower of God and yielded to God, but even though he had had that deeper experience with God, unlike anything he'd ever had before, remember when he was fleeing to go to be with his uncle Laban, where he met his love of his life, Rachel. Remember, he was at a place and he had a rock for a pillow. I'm not sure how comfortable that would be, but he had a rock for a pillow and he had a dream. He saw angels ascending and descending from heaven. And when he awoke, he was astonished. And he said, God is in this place and I did not know it. He named it Bethel, meaning the house of God. So that was a, an awakening, but he really had yet to come to the place of surrendering to God. That took place in the incident that I referred to a bit earlier. What we need to understand is the Lord knew what Peter needed. He needed to be broken, and he was broken. He wept bitterly when in that same courtyard, we'll get to that a little bit later in the Gospel of John, when the cock crowed what happened, Jesus locked eyes with Peter. Locked eyes. I've wondered, and I cannot know for sure what was in his eyes, but I have a suspicion that the thing that was in his eyes, I'm talking about Jesus' eyes, was tenderness. And an, I told you so in a nice way, attitude. And Peter wept, but he ran away weeping deeply. He was overly confident. The Bible says this about boasting, which is an exhibition, of course, of pride. We have subtle ways of boasting. But the Bible says let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me. In order for that to be true, what do we have to do? We have to drop our hands. Say, Lord, I surrender all. Not just some, not just some time. And Lord, when I do foul up, if I do foul up in the future, like Peter did, then Lord, help me to Admit it, confess it, repent of it, and ask you to take control anew in my life. That is exactly what the Lord does for us. Are you overly confident? Here's another reason. I think the step to his fall, he didn't pray when the Lord told him to pray. Remember, Peter was one of the inner circle of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. When Jesus got to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus goes in deeper to the garden and he fetches those three to go with him. And he gives them this word of command. 
He says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. What did they do? They fell asleep, probably like that. They were so exhausted, and who wouldn't have been? The emotional drain was incredible, and the toll that emotional drain has on our physical being is very, very strong. What did Jesus do? He went in a little further into the garden and he prayed, didn't he? He prayed asking, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me, meaning your judgment. The cup in the Old Testament is a reference to there and it's used to describe the wrath of God. Take it from me. But Jesus said, if it's your will, and it wasn't his will, obviously. And so the good news for us is that we are the recipients of eternal life because Jesus did fulfill his role and responsibility as our Savior on the cross. The Bible says to us who know Christ that we are to pray without ceasing. There's never a moment in my life or yours as followers of Christ that it's inappropriate for us to pray. We come to the Lord. Too little praying was what led Peter to deny Christ. Self-reliance is over against Christ or spirit-led reliance. And then also too little praying. And then the scripture says in Luke's gospel especially, this is mentioned in the 22nd chapter of Luke. Also it says G Peter followed Jesus from a distance. Now he at least followed him. We could say he was like the other ten apostles after Judas had betrayed Christ and Judas had kissed Christ on the cheek and the leaders of this band of soldiers, probably a mixture of both Roman and Hebrew soldiers, they all scattered. You recall that? They all left. But... Peter and John, they followed. And I can see it in my mind's eyes. Perhaps you've seen this depicted in some kind of movie where someone is under duress and they move away, but then they follow along in the dark of night. And that's exactly what Peter and John did. So let's go again and look at a few more details in chapter 18 about what happened there. In verse 16 of chapter 18, Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought in Peter. John, we've identified being the other disciple, he could come and go as he wished because he had some kind of connection to the household of Caiaphas we remain in the dark as to what that was, but he comes out and speaks to the doorkeeper. And the doorkeeper was a slave girl. Verse 17 says, The slave girl, therefore, who kept the door, said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, and this is a sneak preview of something that's going to happen after the resurrection. And we'll get to this in the last chapter of John, 
Remember when Jesus was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and Peter and about six others of his cohorts were fishing and they see this figure on the shore and they realize that's Jesus and Peter jumps into the water. He can't wait for the boat to row to shore. He was so excited to see Jesus, just like Peter, isn't it? The impetuous one, the impulsive one, a man of action though, to his credit. And he gets there and when he gets there, he finds a charcoal fire. Only John speaks of this. It was a way to remind Peter of what happened and to give further healing to him for the great guilt that he felt. The Lord calls us every day to himself. The Bible says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If you are away from the Lord today, if you have moved away from the Lord it's you who've moved. God has not moved. You have moved. If you know Jesus and He's saying, come back, come back. Come in repentance and ask me to regain control of your life as your Lord is what I believe the Lord would say. He followed from a distance at this charcoal fire he was warming himself, and Peter also was with him, standing and warming himself. If we look down now at 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said, therefore, to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. This little slave girl, she didn't put the finger on him and say to him, you're one of his men too. She didn't say that. Surely you're not one. It was a little vague to her. But now we see in verse 26, one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, cut off said, Did I see you in the garden with him? Peter therefore denied it again, and immediately the cock crowed. The prophecy of Christ was fulfilled. He followed Christ from a distance. It's dangerous, incredibly dangerous, for you and me to follow Jesus at a distance. We're setting ourselves up for failure big time. We know Jesus was a man who was acquainted with people who were looked down upon by the religious establishment. In fact, they said with a sneer on their face, I'm sure, he is the friend of sinners. He kind of hissed that word sinners out. And it just turned them off. They were hypocrites, of course. Hypocrisy is the worst kind of sin. But we know that Jesus was comfortable. Did Jesus ever compromise in the way he related to people who were sinners? Well, I hope not. He could not have been our Savior if he compromised. And so when we think about, we've got to be contemporary to the world. We've got to be all things to all men so that by all possible means we might save some. And I'm 100% for that. That's what Paul said. But not to the point of following Christ from a distance. He's with us wherever we go. And we need to 
know His presence and therefore be able to share His love in the way we treat people, but without any kind of compromise. In John 17, 15, Jesus says, I didn't, I'm not asking you, Father, to take my followers out of the world. I am asking you to protect them from the evil one. That's Christ's prayer for us today. He doesn't want us to withdraw from the world, meaning people who don't know Christ. He wants us to engage the world. And he knows that the world is under the control of the evil one. So he says, keep them from the evil one, Lord. Protect them. That's what the Lord wants us to know, that he's with us. He's going to protect us. We are to befriend people without Christ. We're to love them. We're not to shake a finger in their face. We're to share the gospel with them, which in and of itself is enough to save anybody because it confronts us in our sin and tells us we have to repent of our sin, give our lives to Christ. That's a tough message, isn't it? But it's a loving truth that we must know. And he was Peter. He followed at a distance, but he was a friend of the world. In this text, which we just read, this girl said to him that he, she said, I saw you standing with them, the world. Standing at the fire, Peter was, with the world. And he even cursed when he was accused of being a follower of Christ. The other gospel writers include that. But then later, the scripture says, one of the fellows who was the cousin of Peter's victim, Malchus, cutting off part of that man's ears, he said, did I not see you in the garden with him? The key for us not giving in to the flesh, our own selfishness, the key to our prayerlessness, the key to our loving the world, more than loving the Lord, is to be found in our being with Him. To be conscious of Him all the time. To spend time with Him. Just He and you, or He and I. Just to be with Him. So that we can have that kind of intimacy with Him and be His friend, not the friend of the world. Remembering the book of James says, Friendship with the world is hostility to God. And we make a foolish, foolish mistake when we choose not to put Him in the center of our lives. Maybe you listened to what has been shared and you've been able to see that you are a person who has some hope. But some of you might say, I'm just too far gone. This is a call to genuine Christian discipleship. You say, I've failed. I've done it dozens, if not hundreds of times. I've made a commitment to get right with God. And maybe you have done that. But you have not learned to sustain your walk with the Lord. And that sustaining of the walk is understanding 
what has been described as a life filled with the Spirit, and that includes our practicing spiritual breathing, to borrow an idea from Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. He says, when we sin, and the Spirit convicts us of it, and He does, the Bible says in, from the pen of David that my sin makes me anxious. The Spirit of God is the one who makes us anxious and makes us disturbed and full of unrest. But it's not to punish us at the moment. It's to instill in us a desire to come before Him and say, Lord, I've taken control again. Please take it back. It's yours. I'm yours. And we need to do that. You say to the Lord, I've followed you at a distance. I have denied you. I have compromised. But I can't recover. Not so. Not so. The Lord loves you if you know Him. He's got a plan for you. And that plan is to honor Him, not just sometime, but all the time. By when you sin, confess it and believe what the Bible says. If we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to purify us from all unrighteousness. I love that, don't you? All unrighteousness. That was written to believers. And then we just say, Holy Spirit, please take control of me again. Be my master. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask thanking you, first of all, for this example of Peter. We thank you for Peter. Thank you for choosing him and using him even to this day. Thank you for the change that you made in him when he came to you. We pray now, Lord, that we would humble ourselves under the mighty hand of yours so that we might exalt you in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.